Friends, and welcome to Unknown. I'm Jason McClellan. Thanks for hanging out with me. I want to talk for a bit today about that infamous secretive military base in Nevada, known by people around the world as the epicenter of the U.S. government's UFO cover-up operations, and a place where the military reverse engineers alien technology. At least that's the lore on how Area 51 is perceived. Why do I want to talk about Area 51? That's a very good question. Before we get to Area 51 though, let's talk about a couple recent UFO related news stories. As many of you are aware, researcher and author Jim Mars passed away recently. The official obituary states, Jim Mars was born December 5, 1943, in Fort Worth, Texas. He died from a heart attack August 2, 2017, at his home in Wise County. He is survived by his wife of 50 years, Carol, his two daughters, Catherine Lafitte of Fort Worth, Jamie Castle and her husband, Chris Castle, his brother David and wife Sandy of Bridgeport, and grandchildren, Moxie, Jackson, and Scout. Jim Mars earned a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas and attended graduate school at Texas Tech in Lubbock. He's worked for several Texas newspapers, including the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Beginning in 1976 until his retirement in 2007, Mars taught a course on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy at the University of Texas at Arlington. In 1989, his book Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, was published to critical acclaim and reached the New York Times paperback nonfiction bestseller list. It became a basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK. Other books by Mars include Alien Agenda, which was the top-selling nonfiction UFO book in the world, Rule by Secrecy, The Terror Conspiracy Revisited, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, and The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy, Our Occulted History, Population Control, and his last book, The Illuminati. Mars has appeared on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, C-SPAN, and the Discovery, Learning, and History channels, Good Morning America, Geraldo, Montel Williams, Today, Tech TV, and Larry King Live, and the George Norrie, Art Bell, Jimmy Church, Alec Jones, and Jeff Rents programs, and many other local and regional programs. Memorials to help with medical expenses for Jim can be sent to P.O. Box 189, Springtown, Texas, 76082. Or please visit www.ucaring.com slash Jim and Carol Mars dash 894894. I know it's difficult to properly hear a uh, URL just by listening, but if you go to the website ucaring.com and search for Jim Mars, You'll be able to find that if you want to help with uh, the family's medical expenses. Again, Jim Mars, his last name is spelled M-A-R-R-S. As I stated on Facebook, I knew Jim as a funny and kind soul. He was one of the first researchers in the UFO field with whom I had the pleasure of grabbing drinks and smoking cigars. I certainly didn't agree with all of Jim's ideas, beliefs, and conclusions. 
and he didn't agree with the conclusions of others. But here's what I'll always remember about Jim. He was among the first UFO researchers I met who respected others' ideas and other individuals. And he welcomed friendly discussion rather than ridicule or hostility. Jim Mars was really one of the first individuals within the UFO community to show me that not all UFO researchers are self-absorbed, stubborn, self-righteous assholes. Thank you for that, Jim. In other news, it looks like plans are moving forward for a UFO-themed hotel in Baker, California. Now, I've been following this story for at least three years, and to be honest, the concept sounded like an ambitious dream that would never materialize. But, according to the people behind the plan, they are now ready to go, quote, light speed ahead with development. Baker, California is a sleepy town located in San Bernardino County in the Mojave Desert. Tourism is the primary industry supporting the sparse population of approximately 730 people, as people driving from Los Angeles to Las Vegas use Baker to get gas, rest, whatever. Um, one resident wants to breathe life into the small town by opening this alien-themed hotel. Baker's biggest attraction is its 134-foot-tall thermometer, the tallest in the world, apparently. But that really doesn't work anymore, I guess. So, Luis Romalo explained to the Los Angeles Times back in 2014 that he wants to, quote, put Baker on the map again by building a multi-million dollar hotel in the shape of a flying saucer. He already runs an alien-themed business in Baker, Alien Fresh Jerky. The LA Times describes, Inside the stucco box with a UFO out front and a bug-eyed extraterrestrial dangling his legs off the roof, customers peruse walls covered in dozens of flavors of dehydrated meats. But after mulling over the UFO hotel idea for a decade, Romalo decided it was time to move forward. Curbed LA reported back in 2014 that the San Bernardino County Planning Commission already approved the 25,900 square foot three-story hotel, which will have an on-site restaurant, museum, alien head-shaped pool, spa, and gift shop, plus a 5,600 square foot two-story office building with a pool bar on the lot where Romalo's store is located. Construction on the $25 million Flying Saucer Hotel was scheduled to begin in the summer of 2014, and things have apparently been slow going since then. But on August 8, 2017, news was posted to the project's website, ufohotel.com, announcing that, quote, after months of revisions and updates, the plans for this unique hotel were finally approved on August 2nd, 2017, by the San Bernardino County Building Department, Fire Department, and Health Department. The announcement continues, quote, This project is not only an attraction that will see hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of visitors each year, but will be a major source of jobs for the community, as well as providing an increased tax revenue base for both the county and the Baker community area for critical services such as fire and rescue, police, and highway patrol. This hotel will feature a UFO tour, where guests will have a chance to peek inside the inner workings of one awesome UFO spaceship. The website explains, quote, The tour includes access to the warp engine, a view into the immense cargo bay where the crew of the UFO store their materials as well as their findings from Earth and other planets, and an interactive teleportation gate. I don't know what that is, but that sounds kind of awesome. What about the actual hotel rooms? 
That's kind of the most important part, right? Well, the website details. As far as the accommodations for the hotel, the rooms will be fully decked out, and visitors will get a chance to sleep in the aliens' crew quarters if they wish to. Each room is unique, one-of-a-kind experience, unlike anything anyone has ever seen before. That's for sure. Apart from the rooms that the alien crew inhabit on a day-to-day basis for the proper operations of the UFO itself, there's plenty of rooms with other specific functions, such as the cargo room, the armory room, the organics room, which is where all the organic specimens are kept from their findings, and many more. The property will also feature a series of supporting buildings, some of which have already been built. The website explains, quote, Since May of 2015, a monumental space robot-themed sign has been completed, and construction has been underway on the new Alien Warehouse, the Time Travel Station, and the Alien Fresh Jerky Space Rover. We'll have to wait to see how everything plays out with this project. I'll definitely keep watching the story, because you bet I want to stay at a UFO-themed hotel. All right, let's move into our Area 51 discussion. You might remember the flood of headlines back in August of 2013 announcing that the CIA had officially declassified Area 51. If you're not familiar with the story, here's what happened. The National Security Archive at George Washington University posted a document obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request in which Area 51 is mentioned by name and shown on a map. The document is a CIA report on overhead reconnaissance and basically details the history of the development of the U-2 and Oxcart spy planes from 1954 to 1974. Both planes were developed and tested at Area 51. Prior to the release of this document, for the most part, CIA and other government documents related to Area 51 redacted the term Area 51 and the government maintained the charade that the base didn't actually exist. But by releasing a document to the public with the name Area 51 clearly visible, the CIA essentially declassified Area 51. Before I go any more into that, let me take a step back and talk about Area 51 in general. The public awareness of Area 51 goes back to 1989. A gentleman named Bob Lazar came forward and claimed he worked on reverse engineering alien technology at a secret facility called S-4 that was built into a mountainside just south of Area 51's main site. He alleges he was booted from working at Area 51 after it was discovered that he had leaked information to his friends, letting them know where they could watch test flights of the advanced extraterrestrial technology on which he was working. Critics dismiss his claims, citing the lack of supporting evidence, including the lack of employment and education records, but Lazar, who asserts the government erased his records, stands by his claims. After the declassification of Area 51 in 2013, NBC News contacted Lazar for a statement. But he was less than impressed with the news. He commented, quote, That's a minuscule baby step forward. Maybe a decade from now, they'll acknowledge there's an S4. Something I love about Lazar is he really doesn't care if anyone believes him or not. He isn't trying to convince anyone, and he's tried to leave UFOs in his past. In a 2014 interview with KLAS investigative reporter George Knapp, the man responsible for introducing the world to Bob Lazar and Area 51, Lazar explains to Knapp, Look, I am not out there giving UFO lectures, producing tapes. This is not a business of mine. I am trying to run a scientific business. 
Um, and if I'm the UFO guy, it makes it really difficult. It's to my benefit that people don't believe the story. Just a quick side note, Lazar did come to the 2015 International UFO Congress and did a Q&A session on stage with George Knapp. But we worked really hard to make that happen. And it took a lot of serious arm twisting for multiple parties to pull that one off. That event aside, Bob Lazar isn't selling books, giving lectures, and shining the UFO spotlight on himself. But still, here we are, 27 years later, and he still maintains his story. Look, I know what happened is true. There's no doubt. Period. All right. So back to that document that essentially declassified Area 51. The media made a huge deal about this, and it created some excitement within the UFO community as well. Maureen Ellsbury and I reported the story on our show, Spacing Out. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Area 51 made more than a few headlines last week and this week. On Thursday, August 15th, the National Security Archives at George Washington University posted a document obtained through Freedom of Information, or FOIA request, that officially acknowledges the existence of Area 51. Although this isn't the first official document to reference Area 51, this story was reported by major media outlets around the world. But some researchers were quick to point out that this document, which originated in 1992, is certainly not the first government document to reference Area 51. Back when the story broke, Maureen and I talked with our former colleague Alejandro Rojas about it. You mentioned that Area 51's been referred to in other documents previously, mm -hmm. and you recently spoke with John Greenwald about that, right? Yeah, right. John Greenwald, he runs the Black Vault. Uh, he's a FOIA expert. He's been doing FOIA requests for a long time. He's got a huge amount of government documents. And a couple of documents that he has, which I think is pretty significant, that reference Area 51, is uh, one that talks about uh, the energy uh, department who used to own Area 51 and they would do testing on like nuclear bombs and stuff. They have a document where they handed the base essentially over to the Air Force and they called it Area 51 before they gave it to the Air Force and the CIA to use. Uh, the other document is pretty interesting too because it talks about 1962 flying a U-2 the National Reconnaissance Office is, is who wrote this document, flying a U-2 spy plane over Area 51. And the reason was is that Russia had been launching the Sputnik uh, satellites, and they didn't know the capabilities of Sputnik. And they figured, if Sputnik has a camera on it, we'll fly a U-2 over the base to see what that camera might see so that they can hide stuff and things like that. So, But that left the name Area 51 open. The title of the document even talks about you know, aerial reconnaissance over Area 51. That brings me to why I'm bothering to bring this up today. Well, a good friend of mine recently contacted me to share some documents he found while doing research not related to UFOs that just so happens to casually mention Area 51 by name. The first is the United States Atomic Energy Commission publication about Project Sedan, an underground nuclear test conducted in Nevada in 1962 as part of Operation Plowshare, which was a program exploring using nukes for, quote, peaceful purposes, like mining. Anyway, this publication from the Atomic Energy Commission is the on-site radiological safety report regarding Project Sedan. It was published on April 29, 1963, and basically details all of the monitoring and testing that took place following the nuclear detonation 
One section states, On D4, the intra-area highway from Area 9 to Area 51 was decontaminated and another RADSAFE check station was established on the road on the opposite edge of the contaminated area. Personnel traveling the road were briefed on radiological conditions at the entrance check station. They were then logged in and the information was relayed to the exit check station via radio. At the exiting check station, personnel and vehicles were monitored and decontaminated if necessary. The personnel were then logged out and the information was relayed via radio to the initiating check station, confirming that the personnel had left the contaminated area. That's the first casual mention of Area 51, by name. Another section states, The major decontamination project was cleaning approximately 7 miles of the Area 51 access highway. On July 10, it was determined that by waiting for normal decay, it would be approximately 30 days before reopening of the road would be feasible. A radiation survey was made at 0900 hours on July 11, and the road areas officially reopened for traffic at 1100 hours on July 11th. This is a document that's been out there since 1963. Not classified, not redacted. It's a government document that openly mentions Area 51 by name, and even provides driving directions. It's interesting. I've got one more for you. It's a publication from 1992 titled Assessment of the Facilities on Jackass Flats and Other Nevada Test Site Facilities for the New Nuclear Rocket Program. This document was published by Los Alamos National Laboratory. In one section, it provides a geographic overview of test facilities, stating, The Nevada Test Site, NTS, is located approximately 65 miles northwest of Las Vegas and is embedded in the Nellis Bombing and Gunnery Range as shown in Figure 1. As shown in the figure, the Nellis Range boundaries encompass what is now known as the Tonopah Test Range, Area 51, the Nellis Test Range, and the Nevada Test Site. There it is, Area 51, plainly stated, not redacted. Better still, the figure one referenced here is a map showing the exact location of Area 51. These documents aren't earth shattering. We know there were government documents that mentioned Area 51 by name even before the CIA declassified Area 51 in 2013. If you're interested in more on those, check out John Greenwald's site, theblackvault.com. What's fascinating about the documents I just mentioned is how they've just been out there. No classification, no redacting, just there for anyone to see. Perhaps the most fascinating aspect, at least to me, of these documents is the sense of ordinary. The text is very boring and operational, and there really isn't a sense of anything secret going on. The workers are all aware of the operations in the area, and they're just guys trying to do their jobs and hopefully not having their vehicles contaminated. I find these documents fascinating. But the question I'm left with is, why did some government agencies go to such lengths to redact the name Area 51 from documents for so many years, and even deny its very existence, when other agencies openly publish the name and the location? It's fascinating. Weird and fascinating. Well, there you go. That's it for this episode of Unknown. If you haven't already, it would be a big help if you would go to iTunes to rate and review the show. I encourage you to give me feedback, too. I want to hear what topics interest you. What things do you want to hear about on Unknown? Shoot me an email at jason at rogueplanet.tv 
or send me a message on Twitter or Facebook. And just a friendly reminder, my book, Only Weirdos See UFOs, An Introduction to the Public's Misperception of Unidentified Aerial Phenomena and Extraterrestrial Life, is available on Amazon. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Jason McClellan. Do me a favor, friends. Stay strange. Unknown is a Rogue Planet production. For more episodes and other related content, visit RoguePlanet.tv.